weather says that in just a few minutes, we're going to get a thunderstorm. We say while we're preaching the word, bring it on. If it rains, it confirms that our God is in the heavens. If it doesn't, we already know that anyway. So it doesn't make any difference. We'll just go through. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, if you have been here for the first two messages in our Millennium Series, you may be figuring out that we turn to Genesis 1 every time. And you're absolutely correct. Part of the reason for this is I'm trying to emphasize the idea that the Millennium, the reign of Christ on earth, is not rooted in Revelation 20, as our amillennial brethren would assert. The Millennium is rooted at the very dawn of creation. It's interwoven with God's eternal plan for a created planet inhabited by immortal worshipers. Revelation 20 is just the capper. It's the, it's the summit of the advancement of the, of the gospel toward the millennium. Or if I could put it this way, Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, peaks at 29,032 feet. That's the most recent measurement. If you were looking at Mount Everest and clouds covered everything except the top, would you say, I don't believe in Mount Everest because all I see is the peak? Well, you might. You might say that if you'd been taught in elementary school that Mount Everest is a myth, that it's a figment of the imagination, that there's no other evidence that Mount Everest exists except some people think that they see it because of this odd little peak way up high. Then when you're standing below it and clouds are covering everything but the peak, you would, because of having been indoctrinated that Mount Everest doesn't exist, you would be convinced by your own eyes that Mount Everest doesn't actually exist. It's just some weird little peak hanging out in the sky. Now someone might say, well, that's ridiculous. No one in their right mind would say Mount Everest doesn't exist. Exactly. Why do we say that's ridiculous? Because as of January of this year, 6,338 people have made it to the summit of Mount Everest. They've climbed it, so they know it's there. And I would use the same logic lovingly for the person who believes the millennial kingdom doesn't exist. If you continue to believe it doesn't exist, that's because you've been taught to believe that. Not because you've climbed the mountain to get to the peak yourself. You haven't climbed it. Because if you will climb the mountain... If you will climb this massive mountain of the millennial kingdom, you will find 29,032 feet of evidence that Jesus Christ will reign on this earth as king and emperor over a mediatorial kingdom after the church age and before the final state. So my goal this evening as we continue to introduce the millennium is to climb this mountain together to chart the progress of the Bible toward the millennium in very broad stroke terms. And my hope is to show you that the idea and the theology of a millennial kingdom is not like walking on a thread across the Grand Canyon. It is a highly developed and consistent theme all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And as we progress through the Bible, the reader is given more and more and more and more information about the kingdom. And so my goal this evening is just to trace that progress toward millennium, and kind of show you the dotted lines of how the story advances through Scripture. I thought tonight it might be interesting for us to take this climb together, so 
I'll have all of us turn together in a, as we progress through the Scriptures. We're going to be returning to most, if not all of the passages we highlight tonight to dig more deeply into them. We're just kind of making very, very brief stops. But like a well-prepared climber to climb Mount Everest, let's begin at base camp. Base camp for Mount Everest is located at the massive elevation of 17,700 feet. It's quite a climb just to begin. This is the launching point for the climb up to Mount Everest. Base camp we'll call the building blocks for a kingdom are created. The building blocks for a kingdom are created. That's the very beginning. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of the kingdom. And I'll show this to you as we go. We have in Genesis 1 the basic time unit of the kingdom. The 24-hour day is created. In verses 9 and 10, the Lord delineates two primary places of residence on the earth, the, the land and the seas. In verses 11 and 12, the Lord populates the land with vegetation and trees that bear seed and reproduce after their kind. In verses 20 and 21, God creates the creatures of the water and the birds of the air. And in verses 24 and 25, God creates all the land animals and the creeping things on the earth. And in retrospect, we already know from our experience just how glorious and how functional this is. Vegetables, grains, fruits provide food for the earth. The animals would provide a level of companionship and glorify God's life-giving creative marvels. And so God creates on the earth all of these building blocks of a kingdom. There's just one thing left to create, and that is a king. And now from base camp, the climber of Mount Everest proceeds into a treacherous area known as Icefall. Icefall is an area on the path to the summit that goes from about 18,000 to 20,000 feet. It's dangerous, it's hazardous, but it's a necessary pathway to the summit. Icefall in our millennial mountain is dangerous and treacherous because if you miss it, if you don't take it seriously, you never reach the summit. It diverts your attention from the fact that God has always decreed a kingdom on earth. And so our icefall tonight is this. A human-ruled kingdom is decreed. A human-ruled kingdom is decreed. Base camp. The building blocks for a kingdom are created. Icefall. A human-ruled kingdom is decreed. Now, we've read Genesis 1, 26 through 28 multiple times in the past two messages, but I want to point out that the base camp, the building blocks for a kingdom, are directly connected to God's decree, to His mandate, to the first created king. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. You see the connection? You can put the puzzle pieces together now. God made the day and the night. He made the land and the seas. He made the vegetation on the earth. He made the sea creatures, the birds, the land animals to be the realm of mankind's kingdom. Created by and given by God to be ruled according to God's law and God's will. 
I won't have you turn there, but consider the re-emphasis of this human rule kingdom in Psalm 8. Beginning in verse 4, Psalm 8 says, What is man that you remember him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is a reference all the way back to creation, and yet it now connects it to mankind's dominion. I want to point out one little note of interest in Psalm 8. Verse 5 says, You have made him a little lower than the angels. This is a traditional but a much rarer translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. This translation goes all the way back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But it is proper to translate this, you made him a little lower than God. In the context of the clear dominion of mankind over the earth and the fact that Psalm 8 is obviously a reference to Genesis 1, it seems more appropriate to emphasize that mankind made in the image of God is made a little lower than God. Now, if you know your Bible, you're wondering how we're going to deal with the fact that Hebrews 2.7 and 2.9 says lower than the angels. Well, both can be correct. And in fact, in the context of Psalm 8, the emphasis is that mankind has been made a little lower than God. And in Psalm or Hebrews 2.7 and 2.9, the emphasis is that Jesus, as a man, was for a time made a little lower than the angels. So both can be correct. There's no need to make a choice. Mankind is a little lower than God in terms of his being created in his image to do his bidding on earth. He made us as a, as a kingdom. And we're a little lower than the angels, as the emphasis gives in Hebrews 2, that we're bound in our physical bodies. Angels are spiritually free beings who come and go to the earth, even in physical form at times. We know this from Scripture. We can't go from physical to spiritual form, except one time at our death. So we we get one shot at it. But a day is coming. A day is coming when Paul, as he says in in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, affirms that the saints will judge the angels. At the most, this means that we'll assist in the condemnation of demons and and rule over the holy angels in the coming kingdom. At the very least, it will be authority over the holy angels. And that makes sense to us because Hebrews 1.14 already says, even now, angels are, quote, sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. But regardless of what view you you take of Psalm 8, verse 5, the surrounding verses clearly connect to a kingly reign of mankind referencing Genesis 1, that we are crowned with glory and majesty, that we rule over the works of God's hands, that all things are under our feet. Those are, that's dominion language. That's subduing language. And by the way, did you catch the imagery? The crown on the head, the ruling over the works of God's hands, all things being put under our feet. Why is that there? This is physical imagery. It's physical imagery reflecting a physical rule on a physical world in a glorious, material, and very real, not invisible, not spiritual, kingdom on earth. Still here in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were specifically given authority over the physical realm of the earth, the fish, the birds, things that move on the earth. 
And then God gave Adam a specific privilege to demonstrate Adam's ruling authority. Look at Genesis 2, verse 19. Genesis 2, 19. And out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Adam has named all the animals. Now, a lot of the scholars that I've read tend to de-emphasize the naming of the animals and they rush to the part they feel is most important and that is Adam's need for a companion who's like him, a, a woman. And certainly the creation of the woman is infinitely more interesting than the naming of the animals. So we understand that that's a, there's a rush to that. But the end of verse 20, which tells us that after the parade of all the animals, Adam discerned that none of them were elevated to the level of equal companion. Now, why is that important? That tells us something about the naming process. The naming process, in some way, involved Adam judging and discerning the character or individuality of the animals and naming them accordingly. That he knew them and he named them according to what they were like, their character, their individuality. That is tremendous authority. That is tremendous authority. In Scripture, the honor of giving something a name indicates you have authority over that thing. When Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were carried off to Babylon as teenagers, the commander of the officials in charge of the captives renamed them with Babylonian names. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel means God is my judge. But he was forcibly renamed Belteshazzar, which means the god Bel protects me. A forced assessment of his character. In Numbers 32, beginning in verse 37, Israel's tribe of Reuben exercised authority by renaming all the cities they captured in the territory that they would occupy. In 2 Kings 23, 34, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt applied his control over the southern kingdom of Judah to rename King Eliakim to King Jehoiakim. He changed from Eliakim, God will establish, to Jehoiakim, Yahweh will establish, almost certainly as a statement of Pharaoh Necho saying, I am your Yahweh now. It was, a, it was an assertion of authority. For Adam to name all the animals on the earth was an indicator that he was the supreme representative of God. In fact, some have suggested the title of theocratic administrator. Theocratic administrator is an accurate technical description, but I would add that Adam's actions are very king-like. Not a supreme king in competition with God, but king-like nevertheless. I mean, consider the evidence here. The Hebrew term for have dominion, used twice in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. This is the same exact term used of Messiah's future reign in Psalm 110, verse 2. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. The Hebrew term for subdue in Genesis 1, 28 means to put something in bondage or to exercise dominion and control over that thing. This is the same term used of kingly work, such as 2 Samuel 8, 11, 
King David also set apart as holy to Yahweh with the silver and the gold that he had set apart as holy from all the nations which he had, same word, subdued. It's kingly. So a human-ruled kingdom, a royal kingdom, was God's plan from the beginning. Base camp, the building blocks for a kingdom are created. Icefall, a human rule kingdom is decreed. And now we arrive at 20,000 feet on Mount Everest at Camp 1. And Camp 1 we'll call the decreed kingdom will be centered on Israel. The decreed kingdom will be centered on Israel. And we go forward just a little ways. Turn with me to Genesis 27. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 27, is, in my estimation, the very first direct prediction of a coming millennial kingdom. The very first direct kingdom prediction. Genesis 27, verse 27, we'll start here in a moment, but let me set it up for you. Isaac, the son of Abraham, is now in his old age. He's blind. He's determined to give his official blessing to his firstborn Esau. And you may remember that in the ancient Near East, the blessing of the Father carries tremendous weight, tremendous authority, and doubly so as Isaac is a worshiper of Yahweh. He's a follower of the Lord. His blessing is meant to carry on the redemptive plan of God to eventually bring a chosen nation, a chosen Messiah to the earth as promised to Abraham, his father, and to Isaac. But in God's sovereign plan to choose the younger brother Jacob, With his mother's help, you recall that Jacob fooled the blind Isaac into thinking he was blessing Esau. And Isaac gives this prophetic blessing over Jacob. Verse 27 of Genesis 27. So he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his garments. And then he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which Yahweh has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. So what is it that's promised to Jacob? An abundance of grain and new wine, nations and peoples bowing down to serve him, a curse on all who curse Jacob and a blessing on all who bless him. You hear the overtones from God's covenant with his grandfather, Abraham. But did those things happen in Jacob's lifetime? An abundance of grain and new wine? Grain and new wine, and particularly in abundance, that's the life of a landowner. Jacob wasn't a landowner. He was a sojourner. He was a nomad primarily, keeping flocks. And in fact, the great famine of Genesis 46 and 47, forced Jacob to move his whole family to Egypt just to have enough to eat. They barely made it. Jacob never enjoyed the abundance of a landowner promised by Isaac. How about nations and peoples bowing down to serve him? Quite contrary to that, Jacob served his uncle Laban for 20 years as a mistreated servant. Jacob bowed down before his brother Esau seven times in humility, hoping for mercy. In Genesis 33, bowing before someone seven times means you believe they are a king over you. He acted like a servant, not like a king. Jacob humbly stood as an old man before Pharaoh of Egypt at his mercy, a very brief guest appearance in the palace of the king. But not one nation ever bowed down to Jacob. 
How about the curse on all who curse Jacob and the blessing on all who bless him? Quite to the contrary, as Genesis 34 attests, when Jacob's sons Simeon and Levi slaughtered the men of the city of Shechem in an ill-advised attempt to defend their sister's honor, Genesis 34.30 says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and strike me, and I will be destroyed, and I and my household. Jacob didn't enjoy such blessing that all who were against him were punished, and all who were for him were blessed. It was quite the opposite. The point is, Jacob never realized, he never enjoyed the full realization of the prophetic blessing given by his father, Isaac. Jacob will have to be resurrected to enjoy those blessings. But even in just the few short messages in which we've been introducing the millennium, you're likely recognizing those blessings as having millennial-type flavoring to them. You're probably seeing that. An abundance of grain and new wine Amos 9, 13 and 14 describes this exact blessing. And when does that happen? When the fallen kingdom of David is restored. Amos 9, 11. Nations and peoples bowing down to serve Jacob. If you know your Old Testament, Jacob becomes a nickname for the nation of Israel. In fact, you recall that Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob. And so when Isaiah 60, verse 16 gives God's proclamation that the nations of the world will give their resources to Israel and that the best of all the world's production will go to Israel, it's not surprising that God says, quote, Then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. All the nations bowing down. How about a curse on all who curse Jacob and a blessing on all who bless him? We're already familiar with the text that I've mentioned many more time, many times and will mention many more times in Zechariah 14, in which the nations of the world are commanded to worship Christ and those who refuse will be cursed with drought. All of those promises to Jacob will be brought about in the millennium. Under the same heading, turn with me to Deuteronomy 26. In Deuteronomy 26 with one exception, we'll just keep going toward the right, toward the end of the Bible. Deuteronomy 26, we're going to see a brief blessing at the very end of the chapter, a brief blessing of Moses to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 26, verse 18, right at the end of the chapter. Deuteronomy 26, 18, And Yahweh today has today declared you to be His people, a treasured possession, as He promised you, and that you should keep all His commandments. And that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, a name, and beauty. And that you shall be a holy people to Yahweh your God as he has spoken. Now despite this blessing, if you're familiar with Deuteronomy, you know that chapter 27 and most of the massive chapter 28 contains curses on Israel. Curses for disobedience and covenant disloyalty, all of which will come true because of Israel's unfaithfulness. You can simply walk through chapter 28 and it reads like a future history of Israel of all the terrible things that happened to them. So the part of Moses' blessing that God, quote, will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise and name and beauty, this has never happened. It's never happened. 
And if you're basically familiar with history, you're familiar with how the Jews have been treated all through the centuries up to and including today when we even have United States governing officials who are openly anti-Semitic. Moses' promise of Israel being the chief among all nations has never even had a time where we wondered if that might be the case. Israel, as the holy people who point the nations to God, this is, they've never fulfilled that function and they won't in this age. This won't happen until as a nation they're converted and nationally they come under the blessing of the new covenant in Christ. And then, then when Israel has repented and recognized Christ as Savior and God and Christ has returned, Isaiah 2, the nations will stream to Jerusalem to learn God's ways. Micah 4, essentially a quote of Isaiah 2, the nations will stream to Jerusalem to learn of God. Zechariah 8, the nations will seek the favor of God in Jerusalem. The decreed kingdom is centered on Israel. Base camp, 17,700 feet. The building blocks for a kingdom are decreed. Ice fall, a, a human-ruled kingdom is decreed. Camp one, a decreed kingdom will be, the decreed kingdom will be centered on Israel. Now we go to 21,000 feet on Mount Everest to camp two. At camp two, we learn the Messiah will rule the decreed kingdom. The Messiah will rule the decreed kingdom. We get more and more information as we go through Scripture. Turn with me to Isaiah 2, a little bit farther ahead in your Bible. Isaiah 2, and as you find this very familiar passage, we're going to make some brief stops at other passages in Isaiah. But before we look at it, and look at several in Isaiah, I want to point something out to you. None of the passages we're going to stop briefly at are difficult to understand. Now, certainly there are nuances, there's details which could take many weeks to unpack. And in fact, we will go back and do that in future messages. But my point is, is that a, a reading at face value, a surface reading doesn't present the reader with a lot of interpretive challenges. There's not a lot of difficulties. There isn't some sense of a, a deeper underlying mystery. You don't get that sense at all. Now, before we read a, a short passage from Isaiah 2, let me give as an example what our beloved brother John Calvin wrote. John Calvin was described by Dr. Derek Thomas, who did his PhD on John Calvin. He's described by Dr. Derek Thomas as holding, quote, an optimistic amillennial position. So to summarize John Calvin's take on the first few verses of Isaiah 2, Calvin says this, that Isaiah is speaking of what Calvin calls, quote, the restoration of the church, unquote. He combines both the return of Israel from exile in the 5th century with the fact that the church was birthed in Jerusalem. And he puts these as, as one event. In essence, Calvin says, the church simply continues where Israel left off. That Israel was the church, the people of God, and now the New Testament believers have taken the baton and they are now the church. Calvin defines the last days as, quote, the kingdom of Christ. And then he defines, though, the kingdom of Christ as this, quote, since Christ came, that's his first coming, we have actually arrived at the end of the ages, that we are in the end right now, that we are in some version of the millennium. He says that the mountain of the Lord, Zion or Jerusalem, shall be established as the head of the mountains. And Calvin takes this as the fact that the gospel began in Jerusalem. 
he encourages the reader to, quote, look not at those ruins of Jerusalem, but at this vision. In other words, he makes no mention of the actual restoration of Jerusalem, but that the gospel beginning in Jerusalem is a, some sort of metaphorical establishment of Jerusalem's greatness. And so this particular amillennial view says, the last days are now during this age. Israel, the nation, is now the people of God, the church, and Jerusalem is exalted only in the fact that the gospel went forth from there first. That's a fairly typical amillennial view. It's mysterious. It is symbolic. You are, you are having to grab much out of the text that isn't there. But let's just read it and see, let you judge for yourself, taking the text at face value. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Is there anything in the text itself that would lead me to believe that the last days are now during this age, Israel is now the people of God, the church, and Jerusalem is exalted in that the gospel first went forth from there. You ask yourself that question. Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos held concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, or will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion the law will go forth, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. There is nothing in the text itself that indicates the interpretation that I just gave you from John Calvin is an example. That's reading back into the text a doctrinal position of the kingdom being now during the church age. The major point that has to be dealt with is verse 3, that Messiah is teaching His law from Jerusalem. Now Calvin explains this by saying this, quote, Now, since we know that this prediction was fulfilled, notice he already goes in the past tense, this is future tense. Now that this prediction was fulfilled, when the preaching of the gospel began at that very place, he says, for Christ first taught at Jerusalem. And so Calvin says, in a typical view, since Christ first taught at Jerusalem, that's what Isaiah is speaking of. Well, let me give you two observations about that. First of all, this doesn't adequately deal with the nations streaming to Jerusalem in verse 2 and Messiah judging between nations from Jerusalem. That's something Jesus never did when he was on this earth. And the second issue is that Jesus did not first teach from Jerusalem. He began his teaching in the region of Galilee and the city of Capernaum, 80 miles north of Jerusalem as the crow flies. Matthew 4 tells us this. But what does the text itself say? It says, in the last days, Jerusalem, where the rebuilt temple of God will be, will be established as the head city, the lead city. All nations will travel to Jerusalem. Why? Because Messiah is there ruling by instructing in his law. And from Jerusalem, Messiah King will be judging between nations, rendering decisions from one nation to another. He'll enforce the transformation of weapons of war into farm implements. And he'll prevent all war on the earth. That's what the text says. 
Turn a few pages over to Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, we have one of many examples of a telling of the first coming and the second coming of Messiah blended into one story. Now, why is that? We mentioned this this morning in Bible Training Institute. The reason this happens often in, in prophecy, particularly in Isaiah, two reasons. First of all, the church age is a mystery in the Old Testament. Colossians 1, 24 through 26 says that the church age is a mystery until it's revealed after Christ. And the second reason is when Christ came the first time, he did make a genuine offer of the kingdom to Israel, which they rejected. Thus, you have many of the predictions of the first and second coming of Christ blended together. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. This is the ministry of Jesus beginning in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation, you shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This is the bringing of joy to Jerusalem, to, to Israel rather. And how will Jesus bring joy to Israel? How will he do this? Verse 4, for you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Wait a minute. Why are we suddenly in a battle? Why are we suddenly on a battlefield after a great victory burning the boots and uniforms of dead enemies? That never happened when Christ came the first time. Verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Okay, we we get that. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the incarnation of the Son of God taking on a second nature, a human nature to include body, soul, and will. This happened at his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But everything else hasn't happened yet. But the description is glorious. The government of the world on his shoulders, his actions as wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, no end of his influence, no end of his control over the world. He'll rule on the throne of David. He'll establish justice and righteousness. Now, listen carefully. One of the great things about verse 6 that goes from a, a child being born to us, and it begins from there, is that no one can mistake the rest of verses 6 and 7 as a physical, earthly presence of Christ. This isn't somehow a spiritual or invisible rule from heaven. This is an earthly reign by the Son who was born on earth. And those two are connected inexorably. You can't rip them apart. 
Turn a page or two forward to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, all theologians, amillennial or premillennial, they agree that Isaiah 11 speaks of Messiah prophetically. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh. Jesse, the father of David, is listed as the progenitor of Christ the man. Verse 2 indicates the completely spirit-controlled work of Christ on earth. Is this speaking of his ministry in the first century or his ministry in the coming kingdom? There's arguments for both. I would argue for both. We would definitely affirm that Jesus worked perfectly in the power of the Holy Spirit during his three-and-a-half-year ministry in the first century. But then look at the work of Messiah. Verse 3, And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will put the wicked to death. He's rendering decisions and judgments. You recall that while he was on earth, a man came to him and said, judge between me and my brother. And Jesus said, that's not my job. That wasn't his point for his first visit to earth. By the way, you may have noticed here, that Jesus, the God-man, the King, who is all-knowing as God, won't need to listen to evidence on two sides of a case. He's omniscient. He will know the truth. He will know exactly what needs to be done. If a judge today was omniscient, he could plow through the, the courtroom schedule in a day. He would simply say, here's what you're going to do because I know. Here's what you're going to do because I know. That's how Christ will rule He'll righteously help the poor and afflicted and eliminate need from the earth. Beginning with His second coming, He'll put all wicked men to death. These are glorious, kingly acts that have not yet been accomplished on the earth. Turn a few pages forward to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 Amillennialism would be a lot easier to swallow if God had never written Isaiah. In Isaiah 25, you have the physical presence of the king. It's unmistakable. Isaiah 25, verse 6, And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Verse 9, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God in whom we have hoped that He would save us. This is Yahweh in in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. There's a very definite sense of completion, of relief. And especially in verse 9, Behold, this is our God. This is more than the metaphorical use of the Hebrew interjection, Behold, as somehow, pay attention to my words. No, this is behold, like someone pointing to something that you can see. This is the same sense used when Moses saw the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. Exodus 3, 2, And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in the blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. This is the physical presence of Christ to rule. This is the one time we'll turn backwards, but turn with me to Psalm 72. To Psalm 72. 
This is a psalm of Solomon, the son of King David. And it's a prayer for his ability, for his wisdom as king of Israel. It's a heartfelt prayer. And the first four verses make sense to us very easily. Oh God, give the king your judgments and your righteousness to the king's son. May he render judgment to your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains lift up peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he give justice to the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And that makes sense to us. If you were a king, you would pray like that. But then Solomon's prayer takes a turn. And it gets big. It gets lofty. It takes a turn and wishes for dominion. And the, the requests are fulfilled in Solomon's lifetime in very miniaturized form, localized form, but not nearly to the degree that he asks for. Look at verse 8. May he, that is the king, also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the desert creatures kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring a present. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute and let all kings bow down to him. All nations serve him. Now this is total world dominion. Every king on earth bowing down to the king of Israel. And this becomes apparent that even Solomon knows this isn't talking about him. Verse 17. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let all nations be blessed in him. Let all nations call him blessed. Blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who alone works wondrous deeds. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory, amen and amen. Solomon is no longer speaking of himself. Base camp. The building blocks for a kingdom are created. Ice fall. A human ruled kingdom is decreed. Camp number one. The decreed kingdom will be centered on Israel. Camp number two. The Messiah will rule the decreed kingdom. Now we get more information. Camp number three. The decreed kingdom is transitional. Now we go to about 22,000, 23,000 feet on Mount Everest. The decreed kingdom is transitional. It is not the church age, nor is it the final state. And so the question we would ask is, are there any Old Testament passages that predict an intermediate kingdom that have conditions better than the current age, but not perfect like the eternal state? Something in between. Well, we saw a moment ago, Isaiah 2, that the king ruling on the earth is rendering decisions and just judging between the nations in Isaiah 2, 4. That means disagreement is hammered out by the king. Still here in Psalm 72, we see the transitional nature of the kingdom. Psalm 72, verse 12. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy and the lives of the needy he will save. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in his sight. So this is glorious. This is merciful messianic intervention. Notice in a world that still needs help for the afflicted. 
We mentioned last time Isaiah 65, 20, in which death does still exist, yet the one who dies at the age of 100 is considered a youth who is cursed by God. Turn to right at the end of the Old Testament to Zechariah 8. Right near the end, Zechariah 8 opens with an unmistakable declaration of the physical presence, the physical rule of Christ. This couldn't be clearer. Zechariah 8. Zechariah 8 verse 3. Zechariah 8 verse 3 says, Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion. We can stop right there. I don't know how much clearer you can be. I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. But what are the conditions of the earth at this time? Better than now, but not perfected like the eternal state. Look at verses 4 and 5. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets in its streets. Doesn't that sound glorious and, and peaceful? The old man and the old woman sitting in the streets with, the, with a staff and watching the children play. And there's no war. There's no famine. Everybody's provided for. It's, a, it's an idyllic scene. It's beautiful. Why are there old people and why are there still children? It means that they must be people who are not in glorified resurrection bodies. Jesus said that the resurrected saints won't be given in marriage, but they're like the angels who don't reproduce. Matthew twenty-two thirty. We would never say that there will be old men and women who are eternally old and aged and in need of a staff to help them walk in the final state. We would never say that. And we would never say that in this particular age, all the peoples of the earth would seek out a Jew to tell them of God. Nor would we say in the eternal state that there's anyone who needs to be told about God. But that's precisely the situation in the intermediate kingdom, the intermediate state in which Christ is ruling. Look near the end of Zechariah 8, Zechariah 8, verse 20. Zechariah 8, verse 20. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, it will, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every tongue of the nations will take hold of the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. That can't be the current state. It can't be the final state. Turn to Zechariah 14. By the time we finish this series on the millennium, your Bible will turn to Zechariah 14 by itself. Christ is present. He's here. Zechariah 14 verse 9 and Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one and His name one. 
No more false religions. There will be one world religion, and that is the worship of Christ. But does Zechariah 14 confirm a transitional time? A time better than today, but not as good, not as perfect as the final state. Verse 16. Then it will be that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. These are unglorified descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. They are even described here. Those who are left of all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. And this is at the Battle of Armageddon, Revelation 16. Verse 18. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which Yahweh plagues the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This means there's still the possibility of discipline on disobedience. Yet Christ is ruling on earth. That can't be the final state. Certainly isn't the current state. In this age, God is not immediately punishing the disobedient. Wouldn't it be great if He did? Just wait for the millennium. He will. And in the final state, there won't be anyone who is disobedient. The clear nature of the millennium as existing as a transitional kingdom with aspects much better than this age and not with the character of the eternal state, that's one of the most important airtight proofs of premillennial theology. You can't explain this phenomenon away. Unless you make these events into metaphors concerning this current age and nothing in any of the texts that I just read indicates that to the reader. You have to make that up. You have to draw and bring a theological system to the Bible for that to happen. Base camp. The building blocks for a kingdom are created. Ice fall. A human ruled kingdom is decreed. Camp 1, the decreed kingdom will be centered on Israel. Camp 2, the Messiah will rule the decreed kingdom. Camp 3, the decreed kingdom is transitional. Now we get to Camp 4, 26,000 feet on Mount Everest. The decreed kingdom is confirmed in the New Testament. The decreed kingdom is confirmed in the New Testament. Now we're going to deal with major New Testament passages on the millennium. We'll do that in detail at a later time. I just want to show you the consistency of the New Testament with the Old that neither must be reinterpreted to fit a theological system. Turn to Matthew 5. I know we were just there this morning, familiar to us. We'll return briefly to one of the Beatitudes that we just did recently. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. And you may recall that to the Jew listening to the Sermon on the Mount, the idea of inheritance would never mean the whole world. It wouldn't mean the planet. We made the case that what Jesus is saying is that Israel, the national focus of Matthew's Gospel, will inherit the land, meaning the promised land. I made a short case for this a couple of weeks ago, and we'll spend a, a whole message on this later on in our millennial series. Turn to Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus is going to be bluntly clear with the apostles as to what He will be doing and what they will be doing. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus sitting on His glorious throne on the earth, the apostles as governors. 
judging the 12 tribes. Turn to Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. Jesus is going to clearly reference his second coming to rule. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Key elements here. Nations still exist. Christ has come. All the angels have have come. He's seated on his glorious throne. That can't be the final state. Why? Because sinners are still present. And there are survivors of the great tribulation present who are already saved and judged worthy in their present non-glorified state to inherit what? Verse 34 Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit what? The kingdom. Turn to Luke 21. Luke 21, Jesus is explaining massive cosmic events that are going to happen before the kingdom of Christ is established on earth. Luke 21, 25, about two-thirds of the way through the chapter, Luke 21, 25, massive cosmic events. Verse 25, then there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, anguish among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And what happens next? Verse 27, and then... They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 31. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Now we'll come back to this passage, but basically what Jesus is giving is instruction to tribulation saints, not to the church. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. His time with the apostles is limited. Boy, think about all the questions they could have asked him. All the questions. They could have said, what do you think of infant baptism? That would have saved a lot of books, a lot of uh, debate. They could have asked, are drums okay in the church? Let's just settle that right now. Will acceptable church music finish being written by the year 1600? Why will Martin Luther marry a nun? Why will she propose to him? When pandemics hit the world, should churches stay open? Are you sure you want Peter to be our leader? We could talk that through one more time. So many questions they could have asked, but they had one burning question. Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, meaning over and over again, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Their continued hope was that now, after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. Why do you think these men were arguing about who got to be first in line to to the kingdom? Because they thought it was going to happen immediately. But Jesus answered, 
Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Jesus' answer is basically not now and not until the church age is completed. Turn to Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, we're with the Apostle John around the year 95 when he's receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's been shown to the heavenly throne room and those in the throne room at the sight of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, they fall down before the Lamb and they begin singing Revelation 5 verse 9 and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The saints in heaven affirm that people from every tribe, every language, every large group of people, every national group of people are reigning on the earth. This has not happened. But of course, the book of Revelation is bursting with the immediacy of this coming kingdom. Base camp. The building blocks for a kingdom are created. Ice fall. A human-ruled kingdom is decreed. Camp one, the decreed kingdom will be centered on Israel. Camp two, the Messiah will rule the decreed kingdom. Camp three, the decreed kingdom is transitional. Camp four, the decreed kingdom is confirmed in the New Testament. And finally, the summit of Mount Everest. At the summit, the decreed kingdom is achieved in Revelation 19 and 20. The decreed kingdom is achieved in Revelation 19 and 20. And we could go a few pages to Revelation 19. To achieve the summit of Mount Everest, you have to leave at 11 o'clock at night. Because if all goes well, it's an eight-hour trek. If it doesn't go so well, it's 16 hours to the top and about eight hours to get back down to Camp 4. So you've got basically 24 hours straight of hiking in literally the most dangerous part of the planet. At sea level, the average height person can see the horizon of the earth 2.8 miles away. From the summit of Mount Everest, you're literally on the highest point of the planet, and if the day is clear, you can see the horizon 209 miles away. That's 75 times more. The summit of the millennium is Revelation 19 and 20. But as we began saying, it's ill-advised to think that the, somehow, that the summit somehow stands alone. No, it stands on 29,032 feet of foundation. And now in Revelation 19, we see the preparation for the return of Christ beginning in verse 11. Heaven is opened. There's a white horse and he who sits on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows but himself. His clothing is a garment dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. His name is called the word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations. 
And on his garment and on his thigh, a name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the return of Christ is violent. It's bloody. It's gory. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of strong men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And now, clearly, after the return of Christ, in Revelation 19, Revelation 21 through 3 gives the account of Satan being confined to the abyss for 1,000 years. Verse 4, a verse of chapter 20, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God, and who also had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And for the first time, for the first time, as you might think at the summit, we get a clear view of the duration of the reign of Christ. We've been at base camp, ice fall camp, one, two, three, and four. Now from the summit for the first time, we have the clear view six times over in verses two, three, four, five, six, and seven. A thousand years, the thousand years, a thousand years, the thousand years, a thousand years, the thousand years. 209 miles of clear view where you finally see things in completion. Well, since we started off talking about Mount Everest, we might as well note what the future of Mount Everest will be. Revelation 16, verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty and the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the wrath of his rage and every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Goodbye Mount Everest. Micah 1, 2 through 4. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Give heed, O earth, as well as its fullness. And let Lord Yahweh be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, Yahweh is going forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him. Micah 4, verse 1. It will be that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and peoples will stream to it. The new Mount Everest is called Mount Zion. 
And from that summit, Jesus, the King, will rule His domain. I have one application. Be there. Be there. Mount Everest is dotted with the frozen bodies of hundreds who didn't survive the climb. You can't get their bodies down. And so Mount Zion is unattainable unless the king himself is your savior and has granted entrance into his kingdom. Our one application, be there. I have proven to you from Genesis to Revelation, this kingdom is coming. You have been warned, you have been blessed. It is coming. The entire gospel of Matthew says, the kingdom is coming, be there. And how are we to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, thank you for the very clear, obvious, no guesswork involved nature of the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. From the very first verse of the Bible to the very last verse of the Bible, the kingdom is coming. The lost are warned, the saved are encouraged. The earth is admonished that someday the king will come and he will set all things right. Lord, I pray that this would be encouraging to us that as 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us to encourage one another with these words of the future. I pray, Lord, that we would be utterly convinced of this coming kingdom and live in light of that kingdom this day. That even this evening and this week, we would live in holiness and we would live in purity and live in fear of you as if you were reigning on this earth now. Lord, we pray for those who do not yet know Christ. This kingdom will leave them behind if they don't submit to the king. And so we pray for the souls of those that we love and, and cherish who are, who are yet lost. We ask you, Lord, to bring them into this kingdom and that we might all celebrate as we read in Isaiah with this grand, glorious feast to which all the nations are invited. May every person hearing this be there. All to the glory of Christ the King, in whose name we pray, amen.